as we're continuing in our teaching series called Redemption in the book of Exodus. Thus far in the book of Exodus in chapters 1, 2, and 3, what we've seen just by way of review is how the Israelites, the people of God, had grown from a small clan to being a, a mighty, a very great nation while in Egypt. And the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, then enslaved God's people, and it was evil, and it was the taskmaster upon them, where they were crying out to God for deliverance. And God had a plan. In the midst of that pain, God had a plan. And he rose up a man named Moses, who we saw last week, was anointed and called by God to go and deliver, to redeem, to liberate his people from the bondage of slavery. And we've seen how the theme, the overall theme of the book of Exodus is that God has a plan to save his people for his own glory. And so God has a plan to save a people, his people, specifically for his own glory. So from the very beginning, when he first made Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden. And then when later, when he called a man named Abraham, to be the father of his people and to bring us the Messiah. And even in Egypt, where you have 400 years later, the, the, the descendants of Abraham languishing and suffering in slavery, you still have God working out his plan to create a people that will belong to him and that will then enjoy him forever. So that's what God is about in creating a people that will belong to him, so that we can then know him and forever praise him one day when we're in the ultimate promised land in heaven. Until then, we live the life of faith. The book of Exodus is about the gospel. It is pointing to the gospel of Jesus. It sets the pattern for redemption that we still experience today. And so we're not looking at simply history. We're reading about God's salvation that he has allowed us to be a part of. So today we're continuing in learning about God's plan to redeem for his own fame and glory. We're looking at Exodus chapter 4 verses 18 all the way through chapter 7 verse 7. It's a significant portion. We won't, we won't read every verse because if we did, that would take up the entire time we have this morning. But I would encourage you at home to go back and reread this. And as you go to your home groups and as you study this same passage, you'll look at topics and issues that we don't have time to cover on a Friday morning in one sermon. But let me give you the main idea of this one, this one part, this episode in the overall story. So the main idea from Exodus 4 through Exodus 7 is that God promises to rescue his people from pain. And so he promises to rescue his people from their pain. Pain. So let's begin reading in Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. Exodus 4, 18 through 20. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Now, as we begin the story here, we see that Moses is not exactly honest 
with his father-in-law, Jethro. He goes to him and says, I, I want to go back to Egypt. So that part was true. But the reason he gave was a lie. Moses says, oh, I want to go back to see if they're still alive. But as we saw last week, earlier in chapter 3 and chapter 4, God reveals to Moses that indeed the Israelites are alive and they're in slavery. And then God calls Moses to go to save them, to deliver them. And so Moses was not being very honest with Jethro here. What you see here is that he's a human, just like we are. He was struggling. He was likely, as we see here, struggling with really believing, okay, there is a God. He can't deny that. He saw him in a bush on fire, and it wouldn't consume. So he knows God is real. But does he truly believe, has he completely trusted in God that he's going to do what he said he would do? We can be the same way. That we know God exists. We know that. We've even received Christ as a Savior maybe, and yet we can still have this struggle, this struggle of belief on God. Are you really there? Is this real? Are you really going to use me? Is this possible? And Moses was in that same place. And in the in middle of this struggle, God is gracious to him. And he speaks truth to him, not condemnation, God speaks him and gives him truth in verses 21 through 23. We, say, we see and it says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So in the midst of Moses' struggle and working through saying, do I believe this or not? God makes promises. God says, not if, but when you go back to Egypt, this is what's going to happen. You're going to do this. You have my presence. You have my empowering. You will say what I told you to say. You'll do the miracles that I, that I gave you the power to do. I'm going to empower you, and you're going to do this, and I'm with you. And yes, I can tell you it's not going to be easy. Pharaoh's not going to want to do it, but that's okay. I'm sovereign. And in the end, it will happen. And he refers to this with family terms. He calls Israel his firstborn son. He's referring to Israel as his family. Now, this is very important. We can't miss this detail. There's so much in this text, but we can't miss this detail where he refers to Israel as his son. It points ultimately to Jesus. You may recall in the Gospels that even Jesus went in to Egypt to avoid being killed himself from Bethlehem. But then, of course, God called him out of Egypt. And so this is even foreshadowing what happened with Christ. But even beyond that, significant points of being called here the firstborn son, the son of God, what you see here, it foreshadows to Christ and showing that God loves his children. He calls Israel his son and his daughter. And so what you see here, it's about sonship. When you look at the Egyptian God, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, when he looked at the Israelites, what did he see? Dirty, full of mud, just insignificant slaves. 
what he saw was beasts of labor. He saw a commodity. He didn't see human beings. He didn't love. He had no affection whatsoever for the Israelites. All he saw was insignificant slaves. From a worldly standpoint, there was no reason why God should have loved the Israelites. They hadn't done anything to impress God. They hadn't accomplished or achieved anything. And they were subjugated. And in the world's eyes, were all but worthless, easily disposed of. And yet, that's the very people that God chose to love and to set his affections upon the Israelites. Why? Because those were his chosen sons and daughters. He loves his people. And no matter what the world says, he loves them. He loves us. Why do you think God was so upset and had such a quarrel with the king of Egypt? Why do you think, as we'll look at next week, God came down really hard and had no mercy upon the Egyptians? Because he was a father who had the Pharaoh who was messing with his kids. This is his son's and daughters, his beloved children. And so this Pharaoh, what he was doing was he was preventing the Israelites from serving the Father. And so instead of being able to call God Father, they were forced to call Pharaoh Master. And so the point here is of sonship, that God wants to be a family. He wants to liberate his people from their slavery so that they can be reunited and experience his love. And he can hold them and say, hey, I know it's been hard, but I love you. And that's what he wants. And so we'll see next week. God came out all mama bear on the Egyptians. He came down hard protecting his children because that's what he does because he's a loving father. And so we must rest in knowing the rest of chapter 4 describes how Moses meets up with his brother Aaron as they travel to Egypt to deliver this message that God gave to them. Now, if you've read ahead, like I talked to some of you that have, there's kind of a, a weird or mysterious few verses in there, verses 24 through 26. We don't have time to get into it this morning because there's too much material to cover, but we are talking about it in our home groups. And so I, I will say this as you go into groups and discuss this and, and look at this in detail, that this, this somewhat unusual text in those few verses in chapter 4 is pointing to the fact that Moses is flawed, that Moses is, is a sinner who is in need of grace just like we are. And it's God's goodness, and it shows God's holiness, and it shows God's mercy. It shows the gospel. And if you're like, what are you talking about? Go to a home group. And you'll be able to study this text that through verses in more detail. But let's keep reading here as Moses and Aaron take this message of God the Father who is not pleased and God the Father who wants to liberate his sons and daughters. And he travels down to Egypt with his brother Aaron. And he gathers the leaders of Israel together. And he tells them, God has appeared to me and he is about to free you. And so here's what happens, verses 29 through 31. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed 
when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So when they received God's promises that he had heard their cries and seen them in their affliction and how they were unloved and their father was there to liberate them, when they experienced God's grace, their response was worship which is the same response that people today have when we experience what Christ has done on the cross, which this points to ultimately. The natural response of someone that has believed in Christ and seen just the mercy that God has had for us is a life of worship. And it's rooted here on the fact that God is making the promises. They are helpless. They're perceived as worthless by the world powers. And yet God says, You are priceless. You are valuable to me. And I have a purpose for you. And I love you. And I have plans for you. He's making promises to his people. Remember the main idea from this text is that God promises to rescue his people from their pain. And so I want to give you this morning as we work through this text three specific truths about God's promises and how it impacts our lives Today, as you read this passage, number one is that God, so his promises, so God's promises activate our faith. So God's promises activate our faith. When I say activate, what I mean is it initiates, it starts, it it begins. And so God's promises activate our faith. And so you see here with Moses, he was struggling His faith was somewhat waning. He's not being truthful about his mission with his father-in-law. He's going. He has enough faith, but it's kind of wavering, and it's not a very strong faith. And what does God do? Immediately, he speaks to him. God reassures him. He gives him promises. And so God's word then encourages, and it activates his faith. And you see that with the rest of the Israelites, too. They were languishing. They were suffering. And here comes Moses. He says, God is promising to liberate you. And what happens? Well, now their faith is built up. Their faith is activated. It's initiated. And so now they're worshiping God. And so you see faith is spurred on when God speaks to us and when we receive his truth and his promises. It it helps our hearts to say, okay, I believe, God, you, you can do this. And this happens to us all the time. Like when, when you hear a sermon, maybe not here, but maybe online or like a good preacher, and, and you, you hear something that just really speaks to your heart. Like, man, that is God's truth being spoken to me. What happens to your heart at that point? Doesn't it swell and fill with hope and optimism and faith and say, okay, I can do this. I know God is with me. When we hear God's word, our faith is energized and activated. Or, or when you talk to a fellow brother or a sister, maybe when you're down and they listen to you and they pray with you and they speak God's truth to you, doesn't your heart fill with hope? Sure it does. Or when you're by yourself and you're reading God's word and you're seeing how much you're a sinner but how good Jesus is and how he saved you and your heart is just gripped by the gospel and you're reading about God's promises, does it not fill your heart with faith? It begins with God's promises. His word, his promises are what activates and spurs us on. You see, we have a God who makes, but also keeps promises. So he's a promise-making, 
but promise-keeping God. And so the entire Bible is about promises. Like if the Old Testament, if you read it, it's promise after promise after prophecy. It's all pointing to the Messiah, that God will do this, that God will save his people, that the day will come when the Spirit of God will be in his people. And so all these future promises. And so Old Testament is promises made. New Testament is promises kept. Every promise made in the Old Testament pointing to the Messiah is fulfilled in the person of and the work of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected on the third day. And so you have promises made in the Old Testament, promises kept in the New, repeatedly. And so it is all about God's Word. This is so important for us to understand that faith indeed comes by hearing God's Word, hearing His promises. And so in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so we see that our faith is activated. God actually gives us faith. We receive faith. It says faith comes, like this external reality that God blesses us with, comes by hearing. The fact that you have faith in Christ is a gift from God. Because left to ourselves, we would not have faith in Christ. He revealed himself to you. He spoke truth to you. He gripped your heart. And then we respond to his revelation with faith. But God has to begin the process. And we see that people in slavery, God is speaking truth and saying, I will do this. You simply respond with trust. Faith and repentance. When God speaks truth, we must respond with complete trust, faith, and that's evidenced by repentance turning away from our sin. So how does this work? Like in actuality, in everyday life, maybe thinking, well, okay, how does this work? I've received Christ, but man, I feel like my, sometimes my, my faith is failing, and the problems just seem too big, and they seem bigger than even than even how God might be. And it's just, how does this actually work? Well, the way that you will experience your faith really activated is you have to have God's presence. You have to have God's presence in your life. You will not have a strong faith if you are drifting and wandering away from Christ. And so we have to experience that. Well, how? How do I experience a life of victory? Well, we sing about it, okay, that's one thing, but how do I live that every single day? I was talking to a friend this week on Skype, and he's become very successful, very young age, getting multi-million dollar contracts, and he's just doing very well for his business. Has baby on the way, and, he, and he's depressed. He's depressed, and I'm like, what's wrong with you? He's like, I got the American dream, but I, like, I got nothing. He has money, a baby on the way, somewhat newly married, attractive couple. You would say everything that he could possibly want, he has gotten at the age of 34. Same age as me, by the way. Interesting. So I'm talking to him, and I said, okay, how are you doing with experiencing the presence of Christ? Are you abiding in Christ? And he was like, what are you talking about? He, he, it was like a foreign concept to him. He's like, well, I'm doing a lot. I'm, I'm singing on a, on a Sunday morning, and I'm leading this class, and I'm doing all these things for Jesus. 
and I'm successful in my business. And I said, I, I'm not asking you about that. He's like, well, I, I'm learning a lot of theology. I said, I'm not asking you about theology. I'm not talking about how much knowledge you have or how much you're doing. I said, how are you following Jesus, experiencing his presence, and having him be your joy? And he's like, I don't know what that looks like. Like, I, I don't know what, what that means, or I don't know. And I said, it's not that complicated. You see this thing called the Bible? You pick it up, and you read it. But you read it slowly. You don't read it for the headlines, not for information. You, you read it for relationship, and you read it slowly. That's what you do. And then you ponder, and you, and you meditate on what you're reading. And you can even picture and use your imagination. God gave you one. Use it. And dwell on it. And let it sink in. And then you pray. And you spend time with Christ. And you delight in Him. And it will slowly begin to change your affections and your desires. And all of a sudden, what you do flows from who you are in Christ. So God is promising Himself. He's promising that He will be with them to deliver them from their slavery, their bondage. It begins with God. He's the one. His presence, His promises to us actually activates and it fuels our faith. So if you have God's presence, you're going to have a growing faith. No presence of God in your life, no faith. You'll be weak and anemic. You'll be defeated rather easily with life, which is not always easy. So number one, what we see here about God's promises is that it activates our faith. Number two, God's promises then sustain. So God begins, but then God must sustain our faith. Exodus 5, 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So God is saying, Let my people go. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. No, says Pharaoh, I don't care about this supposed God. I'm the God of Egypt. And so Pharaoh says, no, not interested. Why? Because the slaves were so important. Well, why were they so important? Well, for the economy, it was, yes, yeah, simple answer. But a little bit more detailed answer is the slaves are so important because the slaves made bricks. You think, well, what's so important about making bricks? These were the Egyptians. Remember, what did they build that still exists today? That even now, thousands of years later, stands towering, so impressive. The pyramids and these amazing cities and their city walls alone were impressive. You know, over 20 meters high. Not to mention the architecture, everything that was designed to display the glory of the God of Egypt. The Pharaoh would show his glory to the world by his buildings. And so that was the Pharaoh's goal, was to build impressive towering buildings like pyramids that would take 25 million bricks per pyramid. And so the slaves were manufacturing these bricks that would then allow the Pharaoh to display his fame and power and wisdom and glory to the world as the God of Egypt. And so the idea of losing the slaves is basically saying, your God is trying to rob me 
Pharaoh of my glory. And as a god, I will not let a rival god do that. And so he then issues a decree that just completely destroyed the Israelites. Read about it in verses 6 through 14 in Exodus 5. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will give you no straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as there, when there was straw. When the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks? And yesterday, as in the past. Straw was necessary, because it would, it would bond the mud together to make bricks. No straw, no bricks. No bricks, no glory for the Pharaoh. So therefore, the Pharaoh, now this is important. The Pharaoh doesn't actually ask for more bricks. He's asking for the same number of bricks, but this time with no straw, which means now it's way harder for the Israelites to go out, gather their own straw, which will take all day, come back, and now begin to make bricks that will take all day. It was just impossible, and the Pharaoh knew it would be impossible. What he was trying to do was send a message. The message that said, your God is dead. I am your God and you will submit to me as a taskmaster. He was trying to send fear and strike this fear into the hearts of the, of the Israelites. So that they'd be so busy and so enslaved and so beaten down and so tortured that they wouldn't even think about being saved as he called lying words, this, this pagan god, supposed demigod, Pharaoh, was calling the one true God a liar, and he was flaunting his power over the Israelites and shaking a fist in the hand of the one true God. He had just entered into the ring with God. That's what's happening here. This is not just a bad boss. Now, maybe you have a bad boss, but that, this was far more. This was a statement, and the Israelites heard it loud and clear as he did that. How do they respond to this incredibly difficult situation? Verse 20 and 21 tells us. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord took on you, oh, I'm sorry, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in the hands to kill us. They blame Moses for the fact that now it's harder for them. They're blaming Moses for their problems, but who sent Moses? God did. 
So in actuality, who are they angry at for their crummy circumstances? Who are they blaming for what they're suffering through? They're blaming God. This is such an important lesson about faith, and we can't miss it. Faith is about evidence. Hear me. Faith is not blind. We talk about a blind leap of faith. That's not in the Bible. That's not what faith is in the Scripture. Faith is not a blind leap of faith. Faith is about evidence. And so if our primary evidence that God is at work is our circumstances, listen, if our primary evidence that God is at work is our circumstances, then what's going to happen is when our circumstances let us down, when our expectations aren't met in life, our faith is going to suffer. When circumstances don't turn out the way you think, if you're evaluating whether or not God exists, if, you, if your evidence is based upon circumstances, then when things go wrong, you will doubt. You will not be strong in your faith. You see, God's picture of redemption isn't always the way that we imagine it. So what do you do when your hopes are crushed? Now, I'm serious here. What do you do when your hopes are crushed? What do you do when what you want most doesn't work out? When what you hope for the most, when, when if I ask you, what do you hope the most is in your future? What, what do you think, man, if I only had this, if I only had that, what is it that you're hoping for the most? And when that doesn't happen, when you have circumstances that are just overwhelming and just so difficult and you're so disappointed, what do you do? How do you respond? Do you find yourself maybe going back to what had previously enslaved you? And so what keeps you busy? The Israelites were busy by, by, by their God, if you will, the Egyptian taskmaster over them. What keeps our minds busy? What do you meditate on? What are you focusing on? What do you desire the most in your life? What are you hoping? What are your aspirations? If those things don't work out, how do we respond? You see, faith is about evidence. And Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. It's having this assurance, even though you can't see it. And so you weigh the evidence. And so you weigh the evidence of who God is, the evidence of his character, his track record, his promises. And you weigh the evidence of who God is, and you weigh it against your circumstances. And a lot of times we put so much more weight in our circumstances that we doubt God. And we don't think that he's going to show up. And then we despair. But when you weigh the two, the weight of God's glory and his history and his promises and his goodness should far outweigh the circumstances, no matter how hard they are. And we put more weight in God's character and in his history and in his proven track record that he will not forsake you. No matter how hard it is, no matter how dark the night is, no matter how bad it hurts, no matter how disappointing this thing is, you believe you put more weight in the character of God than in these circumstances that will not last for eternity. Are you following me? This will change your life. Faith is about evidence rooted in founded on the character of God. And the Israelites didn't 
believe it. It was too hard. It says it. They, they didn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. It was just so painful. God's promises must sustain us. His promises, yes, activate our faith and then sustain our faith. In verse 22, here's the response. Then it says, Moses turned to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered them at all. He's in pain. Moses is suffering. He sees his people in pain. And, but what does he do? He is struggling. No one's doubting that. But where does he go? He goes to God. He takes his pain in prayer. This is the first time since God appeared to him that you see Moses now going to God and giving him the pain. He's not hiding it. He's not pretending it's not there like we tend to do or minimizing it. He's being real, man. God, this is hard. Man, I'm struggling. God, what are you doing? But he is going to God with it. We must do the same and go to God in our pain and in our struggles. And then in verse 1, God responds to him. So every time that there's a struggle, God, God speaks. God gives promises. God's word is what sustains us. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. God is saying, you trust me. I know what I am doing. I know it just went from bad to worse. But trust me, I have a plan. And then you see in verse 6 through 8, beautiful. So therefore, it says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will, I will, I will. Verse 8, I will bring into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Seven times Jesus, well, God says, I will do this because it's rooted in me being the Lord. I am the Lord. This is my name. This is what I'm about. You can trust me. He is sustaining them in the middle of the darkness. But how does Moses responds to these promises. You see in the very next verse, in verse 9, he says, okay, like I want to believe you, but he says, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. They did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to the people of Israel, go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me from uncircumcised lips? He's like, he's not going to listen to me. No one's listening to me. It's not working. Have you ever felt that way? God, it's not working. I'm honestly trying here. It's just not working. How is this going to work out? How are you going to use me for anything eternal? It's too big for me. The problems are just too much. 
how will Pharaoh listen to me? And he says it again after God speaks more. The last clause, the last phrase in chapter 6, again, how will Pharaoh listen to me? Have you ever felt that way? How is this going to work out? I've been there. I really have. I have been there in my life. Nearly 10 years ago, I know it seems like a long time, but it was about 10 years ago, my wife and I, Bonnie, we sensed God calling us to do something for him, something that he gave us an actual deep desire to do. We desired to adopt a child. So God gave us this intense desire to pursue adoption. She was pregnant with Joshua, who's now nine. And whenever he turned two, we started the process. And we went through the state of Texas, through the foster system, and became foster to adopt parents. And through a long process that I can't describe everything in detail today, but we had a little baby girl named Ariana in our home for nearly a year. Brought her home from the hospital. And we cared for her and wanted to adopt her. And it was difficult. I learned a lot. Now, I'll, I'll tell you one thing I learned was about being a more attentive and more engaged father and husband. It, was, it wasn't always easy, but it, it was good. But nearly a year of having this baby in our home, the state moved it to a different foster home. We weren't able to adopt her. And if I can just tell you, after 10 months of having her in my home, the, the, the feeling of despair and the frustration, and seeing my wife, who has such uh, a broken spirit, and feeling like a failure, and being on my face, quite literally, in the bathroom one evening, because it was the only place I could find that was quiet in my, at the time, small house, on my face before God, and just in anguish, and saying, God, I don't know what you're doing, I, I, don't, I don't know, I, I can't make sense of this, the, the pain is just too great. And we did get through it. Soon thereafter, we actually came here. For the last two years plus, I have not allowed myself to even consider adoption because it was painful. And I went home, as a lot of you know, in July to go visit family just a few months ago. And when I was in my, in my parents' home, my mother asked me an innocent question. What about adoption, Matthew? Whatever happened with that? You adopting? And I gave her a lie, but I made it sound spiritual. Oh, God hasn't opened the door. You know, you know how we do that, right, Christians? How we lie, and we actually use God as the excuse for our lie. It's horrible. But I did it in July. Came back. My wife was still there for a couple of weeks um, in August. And I was Skyping with my younger brother, Daniel, who lives in Hong Kong. And we were just, just talking on Skype, catching up. And he asked an innocent question. Hey, whatever happened with your adoption? It's the same question that my mom had asked me just a few weeks earlier, unbeknownst to him, because he wasn't in the U.S. And I, I shook it off. No, 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 some point in the future. And I, I just didn't really want to talk about it. But I instantly felt conviction. Instantly, I realized that I was in sin. And the next two days were miserable, yet glorious. Because I had two days of, of repenting, 
and two days of asking God to forgive me because I had allowed fear to grip my heart. I had allowed fear of pain and fear of rejection and fear of failure and fear of the finances. And how are you going to afford adoption? You, you can't. You can't do this. It's just not possible. And I have a lot of fear to govern my life and to be my taskmaster. And I just had to ask God to forgive me for willingly signing up for the idol, for the taskmaster of fear, who was torturing me and convicting. God's truth convicted me. And I repented and I took action the very next day while Bonnie was still in the U.S. I made an appointment to go see someone about our home study and begin the process to adopt. And we are actually completing the process in the next week or so. And we are hoping, if God wills, to adopt two children from Ethiopia under the age of two by the end of the year, maybe early in 2014. But this is going to radically change our lives. And we are excited and trusting God with what is around the corner. And I've, I'm learning. I haven't learned. I'm learning to trust God and that he sustains my faith. It must be his promises. If I can tell you what helped me was meditating on 1 John 4.18, that God's perfect love casts out fear, knowing that God loves me, knowing that he has a plan for me, gave me the hope and gave me the courage to say no to the fear and to put more weight in God's character and less in the God of fear and move forward with faith, trusting him. And so that's where my family is currently at. But what is God calling you to do? I don't know. Maybe not adopting two kids on the age of two like me. I know I sound crazy. But it's God's call, and we're excited to do it. But knowing that he loves you should sustain you, and it will sustain you if you'll give your heart to him. The last truth as we close is that, yes, God's promises activate and then sustain our faith, but his promises reveal his glory. I appreciate your patience. We've gone along today. I, I wanted to share with you what's happening in our lives. I didn't want to show up with two little African children and you like, hey, what happened? And so I wanted everyone to know and pray for us in this process. But as we close this last point, God's promises reveal his glory. Chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. This is God speaking to Moses. He says, Pharaoh will not listen to you. He's saying, heads up. Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. He says, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, and the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians, this is key, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. I'm going to defeat the God of Egypt, and they're going to see that there is a God, and I am the only one true living God. This is about God's glory, and so redeeming his people is first and foremost not about you or me or my comfort it's about his glory, and that's why he does it. And things can go from bad to worse, but you know what? That happened to Jesus. Things went from bad to worse for Christ, 
Remember the garden before he was crucified. The night before, he was praying, begging God, saying, remove this cup of suffering from me. And he was sweating blood. And what happened? It gets worse. He gets arrested. Kangaroo court. He gets beaten, whipped. It's getting worse. He gets crucified. He has nails through his hands and his feet. Things are going from bad to worse for Jesus. And then he experienced the absolute worst when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the worst thing that any human being could ever experience, being forsaken of God. At that moment, God forsook Jesus. Why? Because our sin, his judgment over our sin was poured. God's wrath was poured upon Jesus, and he died in your place. Condemned in our place, he stood. You see, we fear that God will forsake us. We're afraid that God won't show up. But for Jesus, he actually was forsaken. And he was forsaken so that we don't have to be, so that we won't be. And so we don't have to fear the worst. We don't have to fear because Jesus experienced the worst. He will never forsake you. He will never forsake you. He will never forsake you. He won't do it. He forsook Jesus so that you don't have to be. You can trust him. And his love will cast out the fear. And hope will fill the sails of your soul. And you can go where God is calling you to go and to do what he's called you and made you to do for his glory. And it all comes from experiencing so the question as we close, I ask you for a moment to please bow your heads. And I'm going to call the worship team. Please come to the front. Are you worshiping Christ or are you currently in true slavery to another God who is evil and torturing you and making your life miserable? Don't sign up for slavery. There's no need to. You can be liberated if you'll turn to Christ. And that's what he wants, to set you free. But you have to respond with faith and repentance. And if you do, he'll come into you. He'll change and transform you. Are we guaranteed a pain-free existence? No. But we're guaranteed Christ and the future of knowing him and enjoying him forever. Father, we thank you for giving us this time to ponder your word and to see how you are good and you will never forsake us. Even though you forsook your son, we thank you for the price that your son paid on the cross and offering us forgiveness and redemption. Thank you, Father, for this church. Thank you that we are a faith family that belong to you, to enjoy you, to make you known. Thank you. I ask you to just bless this time as we close and go forth and pursue you. We pray for the name of your son, Jesus, in his name and for his glory. Amen. Stand even as we close in singing this morning. Just surrender all to him this morning.